0: nine years on political truth. Oh, is it live right now?
1: Yeah, we're live. You said you spent nine years writing into the nightmare. That's what I saw.
0: I spent 31 years writing into 31. the 31. Okay, well, I was wrong. Uh, but political truth, I started in the 90s and put it aside and I spent about a year writing that one, just for your right. information.
1: Cool. Hi, this I'm is William here. Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest. Returning guest, this will be his third time on the show. His name is Joseph McBride. And we spoke earlier this year about an excellent book about somebody uh, people should look into, Billy Wilder, his book, Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge. And then we also spoke about political truth, which you'll see here on the screen if you're watching on YouTube or Rockfin. Total full title of that book is Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy. And But today we're going to talk about an earlier book that I reached out to him because I didn't know much about this other part of the whole mystery of, of JFK, which is the killing of J.D. Tippett. And the title of this book we're gonna talk about today is Into the Nightmare by Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett, T-I-P-P-I-T, published 2013. There's Kindle and a paperback version. And Joseph McBride is an American film historian, biographer, screenwriter, and professor in the School of Cinema at San Francisco State University. He's published 24 books, including acclaimed biographies of Frank Capra, John Ford, and Steven Spielberg, and uh, this book uh, is Into the Nightmare, contains many fresh revelations from his rare interviews with people in Dallas, archival discoveries, and what novelist Thomas Flanagan in the New York Review of Books called McBride's Wide Knowledge of American Social History, which also informs his book that you're seeing here today, Political Truth. And uh, so I'm delighted to have him back. Joseph McBride, welcome back to the show.
0: Well, uh, thank you very much, William. It's great to be with you. Uh, As before, we had a wonderful time, so it's great talking to you.
1: Excellent. So for people who may not have heard our earlier discussions, maybe you could just take a minute and you have a long career, a long CV. Just talk about your interest in the JFK assassination, your research, and what led you to write Into the Nightmare.
0: Well, I was um, a volunteer on senator kennedy's campaign for president in wisconsin during the primary in 1960. my mother marian dunn mcbride was a uh, uh, prime person in the wisconsin democratic party she became vice chairman the following year and she and pat lucy who were the state he was the state chairman switched their allegiance from hubert humphrey who was kind of wisconsin's favorite son he was the senator Neighboring Minnesota, and he was called our third senator because we had two conservative Republicans, including Joe McCarthy in the Senate. And so, if the liberals wanted anything done, they would put a Humphrey, and he was, a, you know, celebrated among liberals. But Pat, Lucy, and my mother switched to Kennedy, which really helped him in the campaign. And uh, Kennedy told Lucy after the after he became president, he said, "I couldn't have become president unless I'd won the Wisconsin primary." It wasn't totally decisive, but it, it helped establish him on the national scene. And if he would lost it, his campaign would have been over. But I was a volunteer. I met him twice during that campaign. Uh, the first time was a very small rally my mother organized called Kids for Kennedy, two blocks from my house. And he mingled with uh, kids and their mothers at a, a noontime rally. And I got to talk to him about profiles and courage. And... Uh, he asked a question about profiles and courage. I just read it, and he he quipped. He said, "Only in Wisconsin." When I answered the question, and he said, "I hope I don't have to run against you for president in 1964," which is what the nicest thing anybody said to me. Uh, and then I met him at a big rally in downtown Milwaukee on uh, April 3rd, 1962, two days before the primary, and there were 3,000 people there, and I, I got to shake his hand and talk to him and his wife and. Uh, I was struck on both occasions by the lack of security. When he arrived at the little event, he was with only an aide and a, uh, and a um, reporter who might've been Theodore White, who was writing The Making of the President then. And at the big rally in Milwaukee, there was a policeman there, but he was not very close to him. And people were just, you know, uh, growing up and shaking the hands of Kennedy. And uh, I was already a student of the Lincoln assassination And uh, the Civil War was a big passion of mine. So I wrote a short story in October 1961 about Kennedy's assassination called The Plot Against the Country. And it was for my high school English class at Marquette University High School. So I was already concerned about his lack of security. And the story is juvenilia, but uh, I had some things in there that were in a way. I mean, I talked about the importance of his autopsy and how they penetrated security, um, but although I stole the murder method from a Superman comic book. Uh, so I was not totally surprised when he was shot, but I, I heard it from a student in the cafeteria line in Marquette High School and my first reaction was to laugh uh, incongruously because I thought he was kidding, but I realized he wasn't. So I ran two blocks to a radio in a drugstore where I knew that there'd be a radio going, and I, I listened from 12.40 to one thirty, and the thing that struck me was um, the network radio reports were all saying for the first 20 minutes that the shots came from the front, either from a grassy hill, which we now call the grassy knoll, or from the railroad bridge, <clears throat> and it wasn't until one o'clock they started saying the shots came from behind from a Building called the Texas School Book repository. And what struck me was I was already a journalist. I had been since 1960. And um, I, I was aware that when you change a story without explaining it, there's a red flag goes up in my mind that there's something fishy going on. And if they had explained it, okay, but they didn't bother. And um, as the day went on and I was watching the network news, I saw Oswald being dragged through the halls of the police station saying I'm just a patsy. I saw his midnight press conference where he uh, said I didn't shoot anybody and uh, I I would like a lawyer, like legal representation, which he never got. And by the end of the day, I wasn't believing the official story. And um, I wrote about this in Into the Nightmare, I wrote a whole chapter on what I called the media docudrama of the assassination. It was. Um, <clears throat> if you look at it as a drama, it was a four-day miniseries. Kind of first day, there's a big surprise, shock, president killed, suspect arrested. Then they tried and convicted Oswald on network TV. And I remember when I was 16, I was very bothered by that because it was the first time I was really aware that in America the media try people and convict them, and that's not the way Constitution. Supposed to work. We're supposed to have a trial and legal representation. And I was very bothered by that. And then then this suspect got shot on national TV. And then the following day, you know, the grand spectacle of the funeral, which everybody thought was so wonderful. But um, I write that it was uh, kind of an uh, unfortunate event in the sense that it tranquilized the public and. People were questioning already what happened, and uh, all the news kind of stopped for a day for the grand ceremony. It was also a military funeral. And when you study the assassination, the military was involved in the coup d'etat. So here's the military bearing Kennedy. And um, you know, in some countries, if the leader is killed, people go out in the streets and protest or riot or whatever they do. And in America 93 percent of the sets were tuned to the assassination, uh, to the funeral, which was the all-time record. Uh, So we were all kind of atomized in the sense that we were not on the streets, not meeting in public. We were sitting in our houses watching TV. And then um, the media kind of moved on. Uh, To me, the most uh, disturbing comment among many made, about the assassination in the media. Dan Rather, who's been all over the story, uh, he, he, for example, he was the uh, CBS Southwestern chief, bureau chief. He worked out in New Orleans, but he had, he had been working in Dallas before that. And the other two networks, ABC and NBC, each had one camera crew with Kennedy, a cameraman, uh, uh, reporter and, and another person. But Dan Rather persuaded CBS to have five camera crews in Dallas, which was extraordinary. And he said, I was prepared for something to happen. He claimed I didn't know what would happen, but he must have had some, you know, impossible inside information. And CBS had the only live hookup at uh, the trademark, which some people thought was a danger spot for Kennedy. And so I go all, I, I got deeply into this in, in political truth, my recent book on the media and the assassination, but I, I thought of writing a chapter on the media for Into the Nightmare, but it became too, too big a subject for one chapter. So I just wrote this one chapter, and Jacqueline Kennedy had orchestrated the funeral, and it was pool coverage, CBS actually called the shots, and... Um, they, they uh, What Dan Rather said 20 years later in one of his retrospective specials on the assassination—actually, it was a CBS warning program—he said, uh, you know, the day I think of is Tuesday, November 26th. He said, the day America went back to work, and we all resumed our jobs, and the system worked. And on the contrary, I remember that as— the bleakest of the days because I went back to high school and you know I wondered you know what had happened to our country and uh, the feeling was extremely grim and bleak and and I didn't know where we were going and I, I imagine millions of other people felt the same way. That was the day also when at, at the end of school I went downtown in Milwaukee to a, uh, a newspaper and magazine store and they had uh, stacks of Life Magazine. Uh, which was didn't didn't arrive at Holmes until the, later in the week, but it came out on Tuesday, and they had the first frames from the Zapruder film in black and white, and that was a big uh, revelation. So, um, uh, you know, the media from the beginning have blown the story or slanted the story all over the place. Carl Bernstein did a famous article in uh, Rolling Stone in 1970 in the CIA and the media they penetrated the media. He estimated at the time that there were about 400 people working in the media who either were working for the CIA and their reporters undercover, or they were reporters who were feeding stories to the CIA and getting leaks from the CIA and doing their bidding. And he named the three leading uh, CIA outlets as the New York Times, CBS, and Time Life, Time Incorporated. And he he went kind of soft on his former employees, the Washington Post, but they're one of the worst offenders because uh, in 1951, Phil Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post, helped found Operation Mockingbird for the CIA, which uh, Frank Wisner, the CIA, was running. And that was the infiltration of the media by the CIA. So this continues to the present day. I mean, for example, Jeff Bezos, the owner of... uh, Washington Post is very openly doing business with the CIA. And so the Post has been a CIA front from the beginning. And uh, so the media have lied to us, the mainstream media have lied to us from day one, with very rare exceptions. But it's it's the alternate media, uh, William, like you and other podcasters and bloggers on the Internet, Internet publications. The Internet gets a lot of knocks, but I... I think it's it's a force for democracy in many ways because um, despite the you know hate speech and crazy sites that go on, it, it gives a room for alternate voices that the mainstream media don't allow us. So that's that's where the that and books are where the uh, is, is really examined, you know, because there's more freedom in books than there is in uh, newspapers and magazines because you have less mediation. Yeah, the books published by the main publishers, the few publishers that are the big ones, uh, tend to be pro-Warren Commission books. But um, the dissenting books are published by a few small publishers. But also you can can self-publish now, which is a big revolution in publishing. It used to be considered the vanity press. It was looked down upon. But now it's a very big, big big-scale business. Um, uh, you, You know, you can have your book designed by a good designer, which I do, and, and set in type <clears throat> easily. And then you hire a fulfillment house to do print-on-demand shipping the book, and, and you can sell it through Amazon. And that's what I've done with Into the Nightmare of Political Truth, and they keep selling very well all, all over the world. And-
1: Congrats. Yeah. And you get you get the lion's share of the money, not to some publisher, too. Yeah, and, mean, and you avoid this word that I learned from... Uh, what was her name, Dutton, who wrote I Will Be Done about Nelson Rockefeller, which is this word privishing, where you can take your book and a a publisher can pick it up, but then they'll just put it on the shelf and not promote it. So self-publishing has that advantage too, is where self-promotion is another component of the self-publishing. Yeah, you
0: you have to do that, but you, you kind of have to do that with mainstream publishers. I still do mainstream books. For example, Columbia University Press has published my book How did Lubitsch do it about Ernst Lubitsch and my Billy Wilder dancing on the edge? Very good publisher, and but you you know authors still have to do a lot of the promotion, and I've learned how to do that. I have a lot of media contacts, and there are many, as as I say, podcasts that keep calling on me for interviews, and it's a way to reach the public directly, and uh, um, you get a good share of the money self-publishing, but you do have to share some money with Amazon and with the Fulfillment House for printing it, but it, that's fair. Um, and you get the money quickly, and, and you know, you probably get even more of a share than you do from the publisher. You don't get an advance, but you get ro- consistent royalties. And, so it's, and you also it's, get
1: control, too, so it's your voice. Like, this book is your voice, right, into the nightmare. So you really can put, like, my voice comes through in my books. It's the subtext, but I think that Words and all, whatever I put out is mine, yeah. and so I think that people appreciate that as opposed to somebody meddling with my final text and editing. Yeah. We don't want to cover that no this yeah. is shaping, shaping the author's authentic words I think is is really kind of what publishers some publishers can do.
0: Yes, you have complete control and I, I really wanted that for sure because you know if you go with a mainstream publisher as good as they might be, you deal with editors and you know, Peter Dale Scott, who's a very good uh, historian, wrote a fine book called Deep Politics and the Death of JFK. He published it with the University of California Press, and I've had books with them, and uh, they're a good publisher, but he had to pull some punches, apparently. Um, in certain areas, he, he was kind of told not to go too far, but with my two books, I put exactly in there what I want to put in there, uh, and, and people can quarrel with it if they want, but that's, that's, that's fine. I used to when I
1: was at Berkeley. I used to pass uh, Peter Dale Scott under Sather Gate back in the day, so okay. I remember him. And they used to have like the rudimentary website was a website called Deep Politics, where you could read his stuff. So yeah. he, he has found a way around kind of uh, any type of editorializing, but uh, yeah, he yeah. was one of the one of the early ones.
0: Yeah, he coined that term Deep Politics, which uh, deals with the you know the real people running the government behind the scenes you know we think uh the people we elect run it but there's a layer behind it i mean one example this is very timely is that under the jfk records act which was passed in 1993 as a result of oliver stone's jfk that film highlighted that millions of pages of documents were still classified in the kennedy assassination and if a lone nut with no motive shot Kennedy, why are they hiding so many documents? So Congress passed an act mandating they release all documents. There are a few exceptions. If national security or sources and methods are involved, um, they can still make a decision to classify some. but. The intent was to get everything out within 25 years, and they've released millions of pages of documents, the National Archives has them online, too. Um, I used to have to go to the National Archives in person when I was starting my research uh, in the 80s for Into the Nightmare. I'd go to the National Archives and Xerox stuff, it was time-consuming and expensive, but now you can read a lot online. However, there are something like 15,000 documents that are still classified after 59 years, and um, President Trump announced that he was going to release all the documents uh, on schedule. They, they had the deadline, and then a day or two before the release was planned, the CIA and the FBI got to him and told him not to release, you know, some documents. And uh, the CIA uh, is involved in the majority of the hidden documents. And uh, so he, he kicked the can down the road to Biden. And Biden um, released a few documents, but he's still not totally complying with the law. And in mid-December, he's supposed to release more. But I, I'm sure that there will be some withheld, even though some will probably be released. And that's, that's something the public should be concerned about. You know, why, why are certain things being hidden? I mean, I'll give you one example of what's hidden. Um, there's a, a journalist named Jefferson Morley who used to work for the Washington Post, and he had trouble getting assassination articles published there, so he moved on. And he's been conducting a campaign in in the courts for years to get documents released about George Joannides, who was a CIA officer um, who was the liaison with the House Select Committee for assassinations. He was supposed to facilitate releases of papers from the CIA, but in fact he didn't tell them. He was the case officer who was handling the anti-Castro Cubans in the Miami station at the time of the assassination, and some of those people are suspects in the assassination. And he probably uh, knew about Oswald's activities in New Orleans that summer with anti-Castro Cubans, in in which Oswald was posing as an anti-Castro person and um, so anyway joanides lied to the house select committee and a lot of the documents about him are still classified and so there's something to hide there and, and we really should know what went on
1: i've done four interviews with jefferson morley so i've done his most recent book excellent book highly recommend which is scorpion's dance and people can check that out and it does fall into the gfk because helms and nixon would say to each other the bay of pigs thing they wouldn't say the JFK assassination, but you get the picture that they both knew that there was a no-go sensitive zone uh, that neither of them really wanted to discuss. And Helms was kind of an underling of Dulles. And, uh, but yeah, Jefferson Morley, I think he did another one, CIA, JFK versus CIA, which is about his litigation uh, that ended up in front of uh, Kavanaugh, actually.
0: And then the, you interviewed him, and give him a platform, and he could talk about the issues involved. Books keep coming out every day. I just got one in the mail, my good friend Joe Green. I don't know if you've had Joe Green. I you? interviewed Joe
1: Green last week, so I talked oh. to him just about tinfoil. Yeah,
0: yeah, wonderful, no. yeah. Tinfoil had not included conspiracy theories and art and practice. He is a wonderful guy and a great researcher and a very good writer. And um, so I got that in the mail today, and I'm really excited. I'm going to read that right away. And there's a book by Paul Gregory, who is an acquaintance of Oswald, who thinks Oswald did it. That's a new book. So books keep coming out, you know. And it's it's a very healthy environment to have books of all kinds out. And uh, a lot of researchers are busy on the case and doing good for the public. And uh, thank you for having them on. And thank you for having me on the show.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad to have you back. I mean, and I think one of the interesting aspects about this book, Into the Nightmare, is how personal it is for you this case um you had a lot of similarities with kennedy kind of uh, maybe your background and so it was kind of when you were 16 when he was killed it was uh very very it kind of affected your family your parents knew him as well right
0: yeah my mother um, as i say worked for him and with him and uh, i met him again in 62 when he was president he came to milwaukee to do a um, jefferson jackson day dinner address and uh I was one of the honor guard, just kind of you know walking around. And um, at the end of the uh, event, everybody had left, and I walked up to the podium, which had the presidential seal on it, and I found Kennedy's speech copy with notes that he had doodled on it, and, uh, some writing and pictures of sailboats and stuff. And I was debating whether to steal this document from the president of the United States, and being a Staunch Catholic kid at the time I was, uh, I felt guilty about stealing it. So I was contemplating this, and a Secret Service man came up and took the presidential seal. And then he took the papers, and I said, Could I have those? And he said, No, this is secret because the president might have written something about Berlin, is what he claimed. So he walked away, and then I heard a commotion behind me. There was a curtain. So I pulled the curtain, and Kennedy walked five feet from me he was right there and I impulsively called out hi Jack and he smiled and uh turned walked down a ramp into the limousine in which he'd be killed a year later that's the last time I saw him uh but I was so it it meant a lot to me personally it changed my life because I was going to go into politics I was going to become a lawyer and a politician and um I lost faith in our political system and, and you know when you're candidate is murdered, uh, and and they didn't solve the crime, that profoundly bothered me about the United States, and uh, I was confused by the Warren Commission report, which I read when it came out, and, you know, uh, temporarily I kind of believed it, because we were raised back then to believe in the government and the media, and uh, a huge percentage of the public before the assassination automatically believed what the government said. And it took me until the Vietnam War started heating up a year or two later, uh, as a direct result of the assassination, that I began questioning the government, and I was a protester in Madison when I went to college. And in 66, a number of books came out questioning the case, Mark Lane's book, and Inquest by Edward J. Epstein exposed the... Dubious Methods of the Warren Commission in 67, Sylvia Marr's book, Accessories After the Fact, which I still think is the best book in the assassination. So by then I was beginning to have my old skepticism come back. And so it changed my whole life. I, I, I devoted myself to be being a writer, which I was going to do anyway. But um, my purpose as a writer, you know, all that I write is to expose hidden truths because. I felt I'd been lied to systematically as a kid by the government, by the media, by my parents, by the Catholic Church, and, and I, I rejected all those things and began to think for myself which we should all do, and I started writing more and more books, and when I write film history books, such as my biographies of Capra and John Ford and Steven Spielberg, I, I delved behind the official facade of these people and come up with a lot of revelations, uh, things that, I mean, my Capra book took seven years. Was, I spent four years fighting the legal battle to get it out because Capra's archivist, Janine Basinger of Wesleyan University and the famous editor, Bob Gottlieb of Knopf, who's Robert Caro's editor, um, tried to either stop the book or, or uh, gut the book of, the revelations i made. to Capra was an informer during the Blacklist period, for example, and nobody knew that. So I had to fight this battle to get it out, and I got it out through a more honest publisher, Simon & Schuster. And I didn't realize I was assembling material for another book. I did a book called Frankly Unmasking Frank Capra in 2019. I kept voluminous notes on the legal fight. So I wrote this long book about how difficult it is to tell the truth about a public figure in America and all the opposition you get. And, uh, but I, I prevailed. And, uh, uh, the same is true of the assassination. You know, I mean, like for a long time, I would try to talk to my friends and family about it and people would not want to talk about it or they would ridicule. That's a common thing you still see today. People ridicule conspiracy theories and today, the words conspiracy theories are tossed around all the time. The words don't really mean much anymore because they're tossed around even when they're not conspiracy theories. They're just, you know, disagreements on on what's true. And um, But you get a lot of uh, criticism and stigmatization, and people used to say people were crazy for studying, for having dissident views. But, um, you know, after a while, I learned how to not worry about that stuff. And and uh, very forthrightly uh, uh, talk about the assassination. So I started in 82 uh, my serious research, by which I mean every day I study the case and I began to go to Washington and Dallas and interview people. And uh, it took 31 years to get into the nightmare out. And uh, as you and I were talking about, it's framed as a first person investigation my search for the killers of Kennedy and Officer Tippett. Uh, I figured that was the best way to tell the story: how I learned about it, how I, how my views grew and changed. And I, I think I'm like many, many people in my initial skepticism. For example, the Gallup poll about a week after the assassination showed that a majority of Americans didn't believe that Oswald had done it alone. They didn't ask whether he did it at all. But uh, one of the Gallup uh, uh, leaders said a few years ago that consistently 70% of Americans don't believe the Warren Report. It's a little lower than that now, but the public is smarter than the politicians. They see through the lies. And um, and it took a long time to sort this out. The Tippett case is very enigmatic, very complex. And uh, but I started writing, you know, while I was doing that, I was writing about the media too, and I I put that aside. I actually tried to sell a book on the media and the assassination in the 90s to some mainstream publishers and didn't get a positive response. One editor said, I believe there is a conspiracy, but we can't publish this book because you want to attack the New York Times, and we rely on the New York Times for book reviews, and we can't afford to antagonize. And that tells you the kind of attitude in the media uh, that, that stifles dissent. And a lot of people, I think, in the media actually share that kind of belief that the editor had that they know that the story doesn't add up in terms of the official story, but they're afraid to tell the truth or to get behind it. And um, a realization I've had over the years is that every major event in American history since 1960, the official story doesn't make any sense and it falls apart the minute you examine it. For example, Kennedy assassination, Vietnam, um, Watergate, uh, Iran-Contra, uh, the Gulf War, the uh, 9/11, the, uh, uh, the Iraq War, Afghanistan War—all those things. The official story is ridiculous, actually. And uh, um, you can and, actually
1: throw in MLK and RFK; those are those oh, yeah. are
0: really cool too. Yeah, and Malcolm X.
1: No, uh, thanks, Malcolm X. Yeah
0: big, big, uh, story major assassinations where the official story is a cover story. And, uh, and, and yeah, it's interesting though. In Malcolm X's case. Um, the, the guys who were named as assassins, some of them had nothing to do with it. And two of them were exonerated recently by the New York authorities. One guy had died in prison, unfortunately, but another guy, um, got out and he's suing, uh, New York. And, uh, The the New York Times reports on that, and and there was a good Netflix series on that. And um, Spike Lee did a book on Malcolm X uh, to go along with his film, and he talked about some of the uh, anomalies in the case. But, you know, it's safer to talk about Malcolm X than it is to talk about the president, because as important as Malcolm X was, and he was a hero of mine, he was not president, he didn't have the great power. Uh, he was a threat to the establishment as as was Martin Luther King, but you you can be a little more frank. But if you're saying the government covered up and maybe was involved in the assassination of the president, that's a, that shakes people's confidence in the government. And the media are basically an arm of the government. They see their job as propping up the government's credibility, even if it's dubious. You know,
1: right? Yeah, you mentioned rather. Cronkite. A lot of these guys kind of went on, get back to work. It sounds like after 9-11 too, George Bush, get back to work, people. You know, everything's normal. We've fixed this whole problem. But uh, media still in they're not yeah, it's part of the state. The fourth yeah. estate is the is the first estate, I guess.
0: Well, Bush told the public after nine eleven, he's you know, like about two weeks later, he said, Go to Disney World, travel, have a good time you know, I mean, this is really outrageous, Um, but they, you know, they managed to shut down dissent over that. I mean, Bush didn't declare a day of national mourning so people could think about it. And and then after a while, after he blamed Osama bin Laden, he said, well, I don't think about him much anymore, you know. I mean, it goes down a memory hole and and the facts were covered up by another uh, government investigation. You know, the report was full of Lies and errors and omissions. And that, that's the way it works in our country because these issues are too sensitive to uh, treat honestly. Uh, so, you know, it takes individual citizens to do the job. And I'm gratified that, you know, the heroes of the case really to me are the civilians who came out and spoke out, told the truth. There are a lot of brave people who told the truth about what they saw in Dallas. That day, Uh, for example, Aquila Clemens, I dedicate my book to her and a couple of other people, uh, Marianne Mormon who's still alive, and S.M. Holland, who were three witnesses who told stories that were different from the official story. And Aquila Clemens was a black lady who was a uh, domestic working half a block away from the Tippett shooting, and she went outside and she, she saw two guys involved running off in different directions, and neither looked like Oswald. And... Uh, they they tried to deny she existed in the warren report and uh, a policeman came to her two days afterwards and threatened her if she spoke out but she spoke out bravely to the press and she gave an interview to mark lane and emil d'antonio for their documentary film version of Rush to judgment and she was never seen again and i and other people tried to find her today if she were alive she'd be like 110 or something but um She disappeared off the face of the earth and she was threatened by the police and she she said they they came around and warned her you might get hurt if you talked about it. But these people were honest citizens who told the truth and believed in the law and and you have to honor them. So there are good people out there who are um, dedicated to the constitution and to the rule of law.
1: It was dangerous too. A lot of people was at Belzer's book hit list, a lot of suspicious deaths from the beginning around not just it was a huge cover-up that entailed a lot of violence a lot of people even people involved probably who might have been involved mac wallace maybe i don't know he died suspiciously but they're citizens and i forgot the guy at the train track who saw something i thought he died as suspiciously
0: um, so there's Bowers. yeah, couch, yeah. yeah there were a uh, pen jones jr who was a crusading small-town texas newspaper editor and publisher, owned his own printing press. Somebody said once, you only have freedom of speech in America if you own your own printing press. <laughs> Penn Jones did. He was a feisty guy, lived outside Dallas, and he, he found a lot of the leads and, and um, witnesses, and, and he made some mistakes, but he, he did a tremendous job. And, and I got to know him. He was kind of a role model and a mentor of mine. And he, he told me, as he told other people, he said, take one aspect of the case, one that hasn't been um, sufficiently examined, and research the hell out of it. And That's very good advice. I took that with the Tippett case, because I began thinking, as other people had, that Tippett, Tippett's murder was not investigated properly. The Dallas police dropped the investigation, basically, when Oswald was shot two days later. And um, Jim Lavelle, the lead detective in the case who I interviewed, gave me a really good interview. Um, he's, he said, well, we continued investigating it if tips came in, but you know, they probably didn't do much. But that's remarkable when a brother officer is killed, you'd think they would want to solve the crime, but they didn't. I was wasn't
1: Lavelle, sorry to interrupt, but wasn't Lavelle the guy who was taking Oswald out when Ruby shot him? Yeah, he guy-
0: was, in the picture, you see the tall guy in a white suit and a cowboy hat. He was handcuffed to Oswald, and he participated in the um, interrogations of Oswald. And he told me a remarkable thing. He um, he said that the day of the assassination, Captain Will Fritz, the head of homicide, who was charged with the case, told him that we need to um, nail Oswald for the Tippett murder because we don't really have enough evidence to nail him for the murder of the president. And if you look at... Uh, You know, the situation with the evidence, they really didn't have a case on Oswald for killing the president. So he said, let's get him on the Tippett murder. And a a little known document that I found at the National Archives, an FBI document, points out Oswald was never arraigned for the murder of Kennedy, only for the murder of Tippett. He was charged with both later that night. But um, he, uh, you know, they really wanted to get him on Tippett. And it's a specious logic they sold the public that. If, if somebody killed this officer fleeing, he must have killed the president. Well, that doesn't logically make sense. There could be other reasons why somebody would kill killed a policeman. Um, but the evidence is very weak. Uh, the ballistics evidence, which is really conclusive, was analyzed by an FBI expert who came and testified to the Warren Commission. He said we couldn't match the bullets found in Tippett's body to the pistol that Oswald was said to have had. We, couldn't match him, and there were two different kinds of bullets used, and different shells, and all kinds of anomalies with uh, uh, the evidence. So, as Oswald called, called it the so-called evidence.
1: All right. What's um, What's the so-called narrative of Oswald killing Tippett? Well, did he had to do specific things to be where Tippett was to kill him, right? Well, upon the timeline, isn't that correct?
0: He was killed about 108 or 109, which is about 38 minutes after Kennedy was killed. And he was patrolling a uh, street in Oak Cliff, which is a suburb. Uh, And you can reach Oak Cliff by the viaduct from Dallas in five minutes, driving across the the viaduct. And uh, Tippett was doing a lot of unusual things. First of all, he was not in his own patrol district. He was way out of his district. The officer who had that district was William Menzel, who I found out was involved with Tippett in the plot. Tippett was seen at 12.45, 15 minutes after the assassination, sitting in his squad car at a gas station overlooking the viaduct. Five people who knew him saw him sitting there, and he was probably looking for Oswald coming from downtown. Um, He was supposed to be on a bus, and he, he did get on a bus briefly, and then he exited. The bus was stopped in traffic, so he got a cab, and he came by cab. So Tippett didn't didn't find Oswald. So he took off at a high rate of speed and he was headed for a different location. Then he was seen um, shortly after one o'clock, around one o'clock, he was pulled over a guy on 10th Street um, named Andrews who was driving his car and Tippett pulled his car in front of him and rushed over, didn't say anything. He pulled up in the backseat or looked in the backseat. There was nobody in the backseat. And Andrews saw his name tag Tippett and then Tippett took off. And then he was seen again shortly after one o'clock at, on Jefferson Boulevard, the main street in uh, Oak Cliff, which is parallel to 10th, where Tippett was killed. Tippett ran into a record store that he was known at. He he'd bought records there. <clears throat> and and uh, there were people there and one of whom knew Tippett, one of the workers. And he said, Tippett, ran over to a telephone that they had there and you could still see the telephone. And he picked up the phone, called a number and didn't have a conversation. And we don't know if he heard anything or not, but he slammed on the telephone, ran out the door and then the guy saw him taking off in his spot car to 10th Street, turning right toward where he was killed and a few minutes later he was shot. And Oswald um, uh, supposedly was driven by the cab driver to a few blocks beyond his rooming house, which was um, nine-tenths of a mile from where Tippett was shot. And Oswald then walked back to the rooming house as if he was trying to avoid detection. And his uh, housekeeper said she saw him come in in a hurry and uh, uh, changed his jacket and um, uh, allegedly picked up a gun but John Armstrong has done a remarkable book called Harvey and Lee, in which he spent 10 years doing the most exhaustive research and proving there were two people uh, running, the CIA was running two people under the name of Lee Oswald. One was Lee Henry Oswald, one was Lee Harvey Oswald. Those two names were both reported in the press that day as suspects. And uh, <clears throat> it sounds kind of far-fetched, but Oswald was seen in two places frequently at the same time and a lot of strange sightings and people early on noticed that and they were trying to figure out how this could be. And and a guy named Richard Popkin wrote a book called The Second Oswald. He didn't do the kind of research Armstrong did. He spent 10 years on it. But in, in spycraft, it's not unusual to have the same name used by different agents because it gives plausible deniability. If somebody say does something in New Orleans, they could say, "Well, he was really in North Carolina at the time." You know, that's why they do it. And um, so anyway, um, supposedly the Warren version is Oswald walked nine tenths of a mile, and Tippett pulled him over for whatever reason. One story they put out was that he matched the description over the radio, but he really didn't match that description very well. And the source of the description is not clear. Um, A Dallas policeman evidently called it in. But then there was this confrontation where they were talking across the hood of the car and then Oswald allegedly shot him, took off, ran, and was seen at the theater. According to the Warren report, his whereabouts were not accounted for for half an hour, which is kind of odd because the theater is very close to the shooting site. But uh, when you look into the case, all kinds of things are wrong. Um, Oswald's housekeeper saw him standing outside the house about 1.04, waiting for somebody to come by, and a police car had pulled up outside the rooming house when Oswald was there and beeped its horn twice. That's suspicious. And Oswald was standing there. And so um, if he shot Tippett at 108 or 109, uh, that's not enough time to walk that route. I've walked that run many times. You know, when you walk fast, you you still can't make it that fast. And nobody saw him walking or running or or being driven there. Um, So uh, they moved, the Warren Commission moved the time of the shooting to 115 to make it possible for somebody to walk that far. And that's specious because there are documents that Tippett arrived at the hospital. Well, um, the ambulance picked him up probably around 119. Although there's one document that says he was shot at 115, they crossed it out. Uh, I mean, that he was done on arrival at 115, and they crossed it out and put uh, 119. Um, the the ambulance uh, headquarters was only a couple blocks from where he was shot. But, um, there were other witnesses who gave the time earlier, but Tippett tried to call police radio at one o eight and didn't get acknowledged because there was so much traffic on the radio. There was also a strange uh, message to him at 12.45. Him and another officer, they said, be at large for any emergency that may happen, which is a strange thing to be singled out for at a time of maximum emergency when officers all over were racing around. Why did they... Single out Tippett with some kind of a, a signal. But I interviewed um, Tippett's father, Edgar Lee Tippett, who had never been interviewed except once by the FBI. Um, and he was a very honest man, a very straightforward uh, guy. He was 90 years old, but sharp as a tack. And he was still working as a farmer in East Texas. Uh, and he was a nice man. And uh, he said he felt terrible that. Uh, Uh, Oswald got shot because he wanted to know the truth about uh, what happened to his son. But he said that soon after the assassination, he went to visit Marie Tippett, the officer's widow in Dallas. And she told him that uh, shortly after the assassination, a policeman came to her and told her what happened. He said that Tippett and I were ordered to go uh, to chase Oswald into Oak Cliff where Oswald lived and the police knew who Oswald was, and the official version is that they didn't know who he was until they got him to the police station at 2.10 p.m. They arrested him at 1. 52. but So here at 12.45 or earlier, they knew who he was, they knew where he lived, and, and it, it is clear that the police had him under surveillance. And they, you know, as, as a lot of cities had or have, uh, they had a kind of a red squad or you know, subversive squad to track people like him. So they knew very well where he lived. And um, Mr. Tippett said that Marie said the officer told her they both were chasing Oswald to try to find him. And the guy said, I got into an accident, car accident, and uh, didn't make it to the scene. And J.D. made it and he got shot. And I feel guilty that J.D. got killed. And I found out the other officer was William Mensel, who was the guy assigned to that district. And he claimed in a uh, report that he had been having lunch at a cafeteria and didn't hear about the assassination for a while, which is kind of incredible because you know, most people knew about it. I knew about it before this guy claimed he knew about it. But he knew about it because he, he and Tippett were sent to Oak Cliff. And why they were sent there is not uh, spelled out by this guy, but either arrest him or kill him and i think killing him was the goal you know if because at the theater there was some evidence the police were trying to kill oswald but he managed to thwart it by shouting i'm not under, i'm not uh, resisting arrest i'm not resisting arrest but um so anyway um i, I checked and there was a car accident two blocks from the tippet shooting right around the same time And Menzel was the officer who was sent to investigate the shooting. I mean, the the, uh, car accident. And he cleared the scene within, I believe, four minutes, which is kind of incredible because even if it's a fender bender, it takes more than four minutes to write it up and get the information. Uh, But I I wonder if he had the accident, you know, Uh, 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 the the report on the accident never turned up. So um, here's. Tippett going into this scene, I think Tippett drove into an ambush. that was set up by the Dallas police. And then, you know, it's, it's a matter of some speculation why he would be ambushed and shot. Um, one of the things that took me a lot of thinking was there were about 20 people who saw all or parts of the uh, Tippett murder scene, like when it happened or right after it happened. And, uh, they divide interestingly into about two camps. <clears throat> there are about 10 people who identified Oswald as a shooter. And then there are about 10 people who said there were either two men who did it or one man who did it. And it did, the guy didn't look like Tippett. He was Aquila Clemens said uh, there was a short, stocky man, a description that fits Jack Ruby. And then there was a tall, thin man. And Oswald was not particularly tall. Um, but a lot of these people. One one person said that uh, the shooter got into a car and drove off, and it almost. Uh, well, there's a fellow named Jerry Rose who wrote an article in the '90s. He had a, a theory that Jack Ruby staged the Tippit killing. Um, he was heavily involved in the assassination. He tried to tell Earl Warren when he testified in the Dallas jail that he was more involved in the assassination plot than they realized, and Warren didn't want to hear that. He just said, I, I assure you that nobody has come forward to, to say that, Mr. Ruby, and Ruby said, well, you don't know the situation here, and he begged to be allowed to go to Washington to testify where he could speak more freely than in the jail, but um, the tippet killing happened very close to Ruby's apartment, and so Rose speculated that A lot of the witnesses were involved with Jack Ruby, and I found that to be true. People who worked for him in previous years, or uh, the the main Warren witness was Helen Markham, who was a waitress downtown, and she knew Ruby well because he came into her restaurant almost every night from his nightclub, and uh, she was considered an utter screwball by one of the Warren lawyers, but they defend depended on her, even though her testimony was very confused and she actually kept fainting during the lineup. And it was very obvious to, uh, identify Oswald as a suspect because he was the only guy disheveled and bloody and all that, but she got all confused and she kept fainting. And, um, but she also said the shooting took place around one oh six, I believe. And, uh, she was walking to her bus stop, going to work, and uh, she lived a couple blocks away. And the bus came at one twelve, and so you know that you would want to catch the bus and not not miss your work. So it makes sense that she'd be walking there about one o six or one o eight. And it's it's questionable whether she even saw the shooting. She may have arrived just after it, but she was a very uh, unreliable unreli- witness. But they depended on her. But. Um, there were two sets of witnesses. It was kind of like the Japanese film Rashomon, you know, uh, two sets of reports. And some of the people who identified Oswald did so under suspicious circumstances. For example, um, a fellow named Warren Reynolds, who was a used car salesman who worked a block away. <clears throat> he saw the he saw what he thought was the gunman leaving the scene, and he pursued him a bit, and he refused to identify him as Oswald. He didn't think he was Oswald. And then he got shot in his uh, place of business a couple of months later after telling the FBI again that it wasn't Oswald. Somebody came in and shot him in the head and he miraculously survived. And then he said, oh, okay, yeah, it was Oswald. You know, He, was, All right. he later said, I wanted to live. And uh, Domingo Benavides, the man closest to the shooting, he was in a pickup truck right across the street. He pulled up when he heard the shots and um, he he would not identify Oswald so they wouldn't take him to a lineup, you know, and they they tended to discount the people who wouldn't go along with their version. But three years later, uh, in a CBS interview, he said, yeah, it was Oswald. So you can pretty much discount his identification. Plus, he had a brother who looked a lot like him who was shot to death in a bar In the interim, you know, a lot of people who were witnesses to the Tippett shooting had um, death threats or violence against them. And Emil D'Antonio gave an interview. and He said when they were in Dallas, he and Mark Lane making the film Russian Judgment. He said it was very easy to film in Daly Plaza. Nobody bothered them. He said all the attention was around the Tippet scene. Everybody was very tense, very anxious. The witnesses were terrified. You know, it's interesting. One of the more Commission- he wrote that it's uh,
1: the tippet case is the Rosetta Stone to yeah. the JFK killing. So there was David W. Bell, and he was the Warren Commission. But that was like the real where people should have been looking to find who was really involved, according yeah. to them, right?
0: Yeah, that's. I was just going to say that you and I are thinking like uh, David Bellin said the Rosetta Stone is. I even went to see the Rosetta Stone at the uh, British Museum in London. Um, but uh, it was a huge stone, you know. But what he meant was that since Oswald killed Tippett, that meant he killed the president, which is a logical fallacy. But they didn't, the Warren Commission. Hardly investigated the Tippett murder. It's almost an afterthought. As a matter of fact, I found a a memo by Alfreda Scobie, who was a very smart lawyer, who was a protege of Richard Russell of Georgia. Senator Russell was uh, on the Warren Commission. He was a skeptic. He didn't really believe the single bullet theory, et cetera. And Scobie was sort of his eyes and ears on the commission. And she wrote a memo to um, the, the, the head of the commission saying, uh, is anybody looking into the Tippett murder? You know, it seems that we should look into that. And then they ordered an FBI investigation, which was rather perfunctory. It, was, it took about a week and it was just all superficial things. And they didn't bother investigating this. And that raised a, a flag in my mind, too. And another thing that raised the flag was in the Warren Report, 26 volumes, there were only two pictures of Tippett. And they're both really old. One was 1952 and another was 57. And he looked a lot different when you see his autopsy pictures in 63 and other photos of him around that time, he's thinner, uh, weathered looking, you know, older man didn't look similar. And I began thinking that's very odd. Even in the, one of the Dallas papers, they printed a good picture or recent picture of him that weekend. And they could have run that. I think they didn't want people to know what he looked like because witnesses would come forward and say, Oh yeah, we saw him here. And we saw him there. And, um, the House Select Committee did some investigating of Tippett, but not enough. Uh, They interviewed his mistress, Johnny Maxie Witherspoon, who he was having an affair with around that time. And I had a very revealing interview with her. She was very forthcoming. And uh, they worked together at a diner called um, um, Oh, uh, I'm blanking on the diner. Uh, it, It was a place where a lot of Policemen and uh, right wingers gathered uh, in in, uh, Oak Cliff. And uh, Tippett was in uniform as as a security guard on weekends to control unruly teenagers. uh, It was Austin's barbecue. I'm sorry. I interviewed Austin Cook, the owner of the place. And uh, Austin was a member of the John Birch Society, a right winger, and he, he knew. Edwin Walker, the general who was fired by Kennedy, who was living in Dallas and super right winger, and Bill Alexander, deputy DA, who was fired by Henry Wade, the DA, because he he was so extreme, he suggested that uh, Earl Warren should be hanged, for example, and he got fired. He was at the tip of the scene, and I had an interview with him, and he was very belligerent, Uh, kind of a suspect in the case and so these right-wingers who frequented the diner there was um, Austin Cook had been involved in business with Ralph Paul who was uh, Jack Ruby's financial patron he provided the money for Ruby to buy his nightclubs etc and uh, so there are all these connections Austin's barbecue where Tippett could have been recruited into the plot and I investigated also whether Tippett could have even been uh, one of the gunmen on the Grassy Knoll. Uh, it's inconclusive, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. He was, um, there was a uh, uh, somebody called Badge Man behind the concrete retaining wall on the Grassy Knoll. And there are seven photographs or motion picture films of that figure at the time of the shooting uh, wearing a black uniform. And uh, there's a picture by Marianne Mormon taken right during the shooting where you, you can see when the photo is enhanced, you can see a man in a policeman's uniform firing a uh, short gun. Uh, it's a very good location for, for a fatal shot. And uh, you can see the badge and you can see the patch on the shoulder. And the guy is hatless. And you can, he, Tippett had a very distinctive hairline maybe one thing they're trying to hide. But when I went to the Sixth Floor Museum during my research, they had a photograph of Tippett a year before the assassination. And he had a uh, kind of a notch in his hairline, unusual looking notch. And the gunman on the grassy knoll has that same notch. So I began thinking about Tippett as a possible gunman. Um, He could have done that. You know, a policeman firing would not be noticed. And there were people... uh, there was a young black couple on on, um, uh, on a bench nearby there who uh, said they saw a policeman <clears throat> running from the scene. And uh, uh, so I began investigating that. The, the alibi that would disprove that is that Tippett allegedly was at lunch with his wife and uh, children. At, um, Around the time of the assassination, although Mrs. Tippett has given numerous interviews over the years, I, she wouldn't give me an interview at the time. Although when I met her on Tippett's 90th birthday, they had a an event at the at the uh, sixth floor museum, and I went there to meet her, and she was very nice. And I said, "Could I? I'm in town briefly. Could I interview you tomorrow?" And she seemed willing to do it. And her police minder came over and said, well, I'm in charge of her interviews. Give me your phone number and I'll get back to you. Of course, he never did. And um, she always had policemen around her for the rest of her life. She died a few years ago. Uh, they were very concerned with controlling who she talked to. And I, her son, Curtis, who was at the lunch, supposedly, he was at that event at the Sixth Floor Museum. And I, I was talking to him after I talked to his mother. And he was a very friendly guy, very nice fellow, and and Mrs. Tippett's police minder came over and literally grabbed Curtis by the arm and just yanked him away from me. It was very very odd. But Mrs. Tippett gave a lot of different times for the uh, alleged lunch and, and very conflicting information. And uh, <clears throat> if he wasn't there for the lunch, um, then he could have been elsewhere. But you know, their home was about seven miles from uh, downtown Dallas. So if he was there for the lunch, he wouldn't have had time to be in downtown Dallas. But um, that is still an open question.
1: But what didn't your research also find out? Like he had kind of psychological questions when he was a police officer. So he wasn't this kind of cut and dried, do it by the book cop. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, he was a undistinguished. I mean, he had no promotion in 11 years. He was not well-educated. Um, he had been through World War II <clears throat> in Europe, and uh, he was a paratrooper, and he was very traumatized once by a, a paratroop drop from a, a low height. He was really um, suffered from that. And he had what we now call PTSD. <clears throat> he was very anxious after the war, and he um, Uh, one of the things that he was known for, he couldn't look people in the eye, which is a potentially fatal thing for a police officer. And, you know, if he was shot, I mean, he was shot, whoever shot him, if you you don't look somebody in the eye, uh, they can get the drop on you and uh, shoot you. And um, people said Tippett would, when he talked to people, look at the ground, you know, things like that, because he was so anxious. And... um, he, um, he he had a psychological evaluation which was very disturbing. The psychologist uh, said that Tippett exhibited strange signs. For example, he resorted to edging when they showed him cards, you know, Rorschach cards. Normally, a person picks up a card and looks at it and says something. Edging is when you turn the card sideways and you look at it from that, that way, which is very strange behavior. And the guy... The psychologist wrote that Tippett had no imaginative faculties and uh, he might not be suited for police work, et cetera, you know. So he was not a very good policeman, um, but he was financially overextended. The Tippetts actually owned two homes. They had mortgages on them, which is a bit unusual for a guy who earned $438 a month. So he had uh, moonlighting jobs as a security guard at Austin's Barbecue and movie theater nearby, which was run by a, uh, a fellow who was connected with uh, uh, organized crime and uh, drug running. <clears throat> and during the Warren testimony by the police chief, Curry, uh, Alan Dulles asked a question out of the blue. He said, uh, there's a rumor Tippett was involved in drug dealing. Do you know about that? And Curry said, I don't know. Um, but the Tippetts they had these two homes and but I found out that in the summer of 63 tippett came in with some money he bought a uh, pickup truck for his father and he bought a new station wagon for himself and uh, uh, the family went on a vacation with uh, uh, relatives to the Grand Canyon etc he came in with some money and he had this mistress they tried to portray him as a good family man and all which he wasn't Uh, He he had other girlfriends, but this one mistress who I interviewed had had an affair with him for some months. Uh, She was a waitress at the barbecue place. And uh, they would meet apparently at the barbecue place uh, late at night and have sex. And uh, there were stories that, I mean, one story was that uh, uh, on the day of the shooting, That morning, Mrs. Tippett came to some friend's house and she was distraught and she said, J.D. wants to divorce me. Uh, But according to Johnny Maxie Witherspoon, Mrs. Tippett wanted a divorce. So there are a lot of unanswered questions, but um, Johnny Maxie Witherspoon got pregnant and um, around uh, the time of the shooting is when she found out she was pregnant and she had an estranged husband who was jealous? Who was following them around? And some people have even tried to claim that he he might have shot Tippett, but I don't think he did because there, uh, you know his movements are accounted for at the time of the shooting. Um, but he claimed that the child who was born in the spring of '64, a daughter, was Tippett's child, and he got back together with his wife and they uh, raised the child. But Johnny Maxey Witherspoon says the child was not Tippett's, and she, she told me he had a vasectomy, couldn't couldn't have children anymore. And um, vasectomies are common now, but they were they were given in the '60s. They were rare, but um, you know there there are other accounts that Tippett was in that location because he had a mistress nearby. The only thing, Mrs. Witherspoon was evasive on interestingly was when i tried to pin her down where she was at the time of the shooting she said she was at home and she wouldn't give me the address she said she was doing the laundry but you know i wasn't quite sure where where she lived but that's another wrinkle you know but i i tried to deal with various suspects in the case uh who who've been brutal uh, mentioned as possible uh, killers of tippet and i exonerated some of them. There's a fellow named Daryl Wayne Garner, who was a young hoodlum who was associated with Ruby. And he gave a very interesting interview to Mark Lane, talking about how he was uh, asked to help uh, participate in the plot against Kennedy. And Clay Shaw was involved, Jack Ruby was involved. And he was a suspect, the prime suspect in the shooting of the witness Warren Reynolds and uh, uh, Garner's girlfriend gave an alibi, and he claimed he was in Las Vegas at the time, but he might have been a shooter. And other people, I'm glad, you know, when you do a book, you hope other people will get inspired to pick up your research, that's what you hope for, people build on other people's research. various people have um, investigated Captain Westbrook had a personnel who, who, rather unusually, was at the scene of the Tippett murder very shortly after it happened, and he was heavily involved in, it and may have been involved in planning evidence. And um, there's a uh, reserve policeman named Kenneth Croy who who was there suspiciously quickly too, and some people have said maybe he was involved. There were there was a witness, Mrs. Uh, Doris Colin, who said there was a police car in the alleyway. Tippett pulled up pulled up right blocking an alley between two, two houses, and there was a police car there, and uh, <clears throat> the shooter came out of the police car and fired a coup de grace to Tippett's head to make sure he was dead and went back into the police car, and the police car backed into the alley. There was another witness who saw that, and that puts a whole different wrinkle on the case. I write about that in my book. Um, but um,
1: Do you think it's possible that he was involved and they were just tying up loose ends by Killing him and then blaming it on Oswald?
0: Well, yeah. See, I think there, there are different reasons. Like, for example, let's say Tippett was a grassy old shooter. Um, if they had managed to kill Kennedy, Oswald, and Tippett within an hour, let's say, the, the Dallas police could have said we're geniuses, we solved the case and wrapped it all up within an hour. It would have been hard to. There still still would have been doubt about it. but. Um, you know, as it, as it is, some people even say they were terrific. You know, they captured Oswald uh, 152, you know, Kennedy was shot at 1230. But uh, Tippett's murder, it could have been done just to lure policemen into Oak Cliff because when a policeman is shot, that takes precedence over anything. And I noticed in the police radio tapes that when Kennedy is shot, they're very blasé, like mm-hmm. president was shot. And then when, when the... Uh, report came in a civilian used the radio and said an officer was shot suddenly the tapes are full of very agitated policemen speaking very quickly a lot of calls come in and i told jim Labelle, the head detective there i said i noticed uh, that and he said yeah that's true uh when a policeman is shot that's you know the most important thing for for cops and i said um what do you think the police attitude was when Kennedy was shot? And he broke into a little kind of wicked smile, and he said, uh, well, it's like that old saying, uh, it it wasn't no different from a South Dallas N-word shooting. And he used the actual word, not N-word. They just
1: didn't care. I mean, wasn't there, like, a lot of Klan stuff, too? I've seen other researchers where the guy who was escorting the three tramps had, like, a clan tattoo. Uh, so there some pretty, very far-right, for those days, people around here.
0: Yeah, actually, one of the people I interviewed, Tippett's oldest friend that I interviewed was a guy named uh, Morris Brumley, who was a retired detective in the Dallas Police Force, and he had grown up with Tippett in East Texas. And I had an interview with him. And I was sitting in a diner with him, and I had my tape recorder right in front of us going, and he pulled out his wallet, and he, he pulled out his Ku Klux Klan membership card, and he showed it to me. He was bragging about it, and I wrote down the information. It was the Grand Dragon. you know, He was signed up. And uh, I said, well, what were you doing? And he said, well, I infiltrated the Klan for the Dallas police. But then he started bragging about how the castrated black man for dating white women and they whipped black men, and you know when you when you're an interview and you know this interviewer, you try to uh, you, you try to keep a straight face and, and not really react to things very much because you try to keep people talking. And um, I'm sorry, the telephone is ringing. Let me turn. Okay,
1: you want to answer? It? Go ahead. I mean, we're yeah. kind of coming to the end here, Joseph. I mean, we're at about an hour. Well, I was
0: just going to say, to wrap it up, uh, you try to keep people talking, but I, I couldn't restrain myself from saying, well, since you're infiltrated if the police, did you report these crimes? And he, he immediately clammed up. But I told a Dallas researcher who knew more than I did about Dallas, and he said, infiltrated is a joke, because about three-fourths of the Dallas clan were Dallas policemen. So it was a very racist police force. They didn't like Kennedy. Um Tippett, I couldn't find, he was not a member of the Klan, as far as I know, and I couldn't find much evidence of political activity by him, aside from being in a place where a lot of right-wingers worked. And his wife claimed he voted for Kennedy, but we don't really know. But anyway.
1: But, I mean, you just capture so many problems with the the narrative, the cover narrative of the story that Oswald did it all and ran over there, and then uh, you know, he was. I think he must have been at certain point. They were grooming him for a patsy. He just didn't see it coming. Do you kind of kind of get that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. My, my theory is that, and there's a lot of evidence that he was an FBI informant who had infiltrated the plot against Kennedy, and he was reporting to the FBI. And uh, one of my most extraordinary interviews with with Henry Wade, the DA, who. He indicated to me, like Lavelle did, that they didn't have much of a case on uh, Oswald for killing Kennedy. And he expressed some doubts that weekend that Oswald did it alone, et cetera. But Wade said that Oswald had met with the Dallas police the day before, I mean, the, the FBI the day before the assassination. And I said, really, the day before? And he said, well, a day or two before. But he also met with the FBI on Facebook November 12th, they said, around November 12th, he went to the FBI office and delivered a note, which they later claimed was a threat to blow up the office because they were harassing his wife, but we don't really know because the note was destroyed on the 24th at, at the um, command of Gordon Shanklin, the head of the FBI office there, who told Jim Hosty uh, Oswald's agent assigned to the Oswalds, to flush it down the toilet. And then I found out on The 24th, before Oswald was shot, that morning paper said that Oswald had met with the FBI on November 16th as well, and that's kind of been forgotten. So there are two or three times Oswald met with the FBI in in November of 63, which is very suspicious. And and there are a lot of um, inklings that, I mean, he was being run by the CIA and he was being set up by the CIA. He was a false defector to Russia that would have involved the CIA. And they created what they called a legend about him, which is a series of uh, mythical things that made him look like a hardcore communist, which he wasn't. But he was a loyal American, in my opinion, who was uh, infiltrated the plots for the uh, FBI. And then he didn't realize he was being set up as the Patsy. Also, Kennedy was supposed to have been killed in uh, Chicago on November 2nd. And the plot was foiled by the Secret Service and the Chicago police. They arrested some Cubans, but they let them go. And there was a patsy there who was similar to Oswald. But the plot was foiled be- partly because there was a an informant named Lee who, who warned them about the plot. So um, Oswald's connections with the FBI were very suspicious. Um, and as I say, when when he was sh- uh when Tippett was shot, all these cars came pouring into Oak Cliff, and they were draining downtown of police cars, so that hurt the investigation, and uh, when you have the scene there like that, it's a high likelihood the uh, suspect might get shot, but he survived. Dwight McDonald wrote that Oswald had a miraculous survival for two days in the custody of Dallas police, and then they had to eliminate him, and they in desperation, they brought in a mob, uh, their mob bag man to the Dallas police, Jack Ruby, who was involved in the plot more than, than uh, uh, the Warren Commission told us, and he shot him. while well, he was surrounded by 60 policemen and dozens of newspaper men on live television. It really stinks. To
1: it's incredible. It's just a true unbelievable story. Yeah. And just Jack Ruby, they just played him as like uh you know, a bar owner, but he was very connected, wasn't it? He had friends all over the place, Chicago, a gun running to Cuba, so there's a Cuba connection, is my understanding.
0: Yeah, they had They looked at his telephone records for the month or two before the assassination, and he made calls to many mob figures around the country. And when I was in my early research going to the National Archives, I was Xeroxing reports about Dallas policeman Ruby New, and I, Finally had to stop because he, he really knew most of the Dallas policemen, hundreds of them, and uh, he was the bag man. He would provide them with money and girls and liquor at his club, etc. And uh, you know, if, and he was the liaison with the mob. Uh, so the you know the Tippett case is uh, you know Rosetta Stone, but it's different from what David Bellin meant in the Warren Commission, but. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I'm glad that I advanced the case with um, knowing what Tippett and Mensel were trying to do, and they had to have been involved in the plot to be given that order that early. And um, uh, so, more, more people are looking into the Tippett murder. And then, uh, Political Truth, my book on the media and the assassination, I connect the loss of faith that our country had in the government and the media. Uh, a lot of people thought it began with the Vietnam War, but it really began with the assassination. People began realizing they weren't being told the truth. And it escalated with Watergate and all these other things that have happened. And, and um, it is healthy to be skeptical of the government and the press. And, and, and my whole book is uh, analyzing the lying press coverage of the assassination. and uh, Also, not just the press, but television, radio, movies, et cetera. But, um, it's gotten to the point where half the country now believes one set of facts, half the country believes, you know, physical things. And we see the danger of that with the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, the attempted coup. And uh, it took, the, you know, one of the things I criticized the media for was not calling the coup for what it was right away. The Washington Post even put out a video saying it wasn't a coup, a lot of specious reasons. Now they refer to it as a coup. It's become rather common to call it the coup attempt. But we had a successful coup in, in uh, November of 63, which they won't admit. You know, they can't admit that in in the mainstream media. And that's what I uh, attack in
1: my political truth. Right. And political mm-hmm. truth. This one into the nightmare. I like the fact that you kind of are following these re- researchers and giving your Opinion on some that might not be uh, sketchier than other people think, so you get a lot of firsthand experience comes through in this book, and uh, so I liked reading along with that as you kind of advance down your kind of research path. So that was another aspect of the book I really liked. But uh, the best place to get it is on Amazon, yeah.
0: Right? Two uh, self published books in the assassination, which are uh. Fulfilled by Vervante, a Utah company. You can buy them only through Amazon. And um, uh, they they process it, and it'll be shipped to you quickly from uh, Vervante. So I recommend people do that. And um, uh, I think, uh, anyway, I, I put, I've, I've been researching this my whole, basically my most of my life. And even before the assassination, I was involved in researching what could have happened.
1: And you have a website, don't you, or do you have a social media? Well, I had a website,
0: you know, devoted to all my works, but I was so busy last year and early this year. I had four books out: my Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, and Political Truth, and I did a book called uh, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles: Portrait of an Independent Career. I updated that, and I did a book on the Coen Brothers called The Whole and Human Comedy: Life According to Coen Brothers. So. I was so busy I neglected to renew my site and it disappeared. But I have a couple of sites up there. I'm told that my Into the Nightmare site also disappeared, unfortunately. I have to get them running again. I will, but I have sites on uh, my memoir of the Broken Places and uh, uh, my book Two Chairs for Hollywood, which is a collection of my short works. But, you know, I, I need to get back on I have websites that are handy for people to read. But, you know, if you go on Amazon, it links to all my books. And uh, <clears throat> most of them are still in print. I'm, I'm now working on getting some of the out-of-print books back into print. So, yeah.
1: Well, good luck with that. And do you – so people can reach you through social media, is that right? Or, or do you have an email
0: you want to share? Yeah, um, yeah, they can write to me. and People do write to me, which is interesting, and uh, I appreciate it and I put my address in in, uh, my books, but it's Joe Mac, J-O-E-M-A-C, 809 at gmail.com, J-O-E-M-A-C-809 at gmail.com, and it is really nice to hear from readers, uh, and a lot of people really care about the case, and when you write a book, you don't know who your readers are exactly, but you get to meet them occasionally and uh, hear from them, which is uh, a part of the reward of writing a book, and uh, I'm I like internet forums. I'm in the Education Forum, which is a good site that debates the assassination. A lot of good researchers uh, post their discoveries and things. So a lot of um, things are still being learned about the case. And then we'll see next month uh, what happens when the deadline comes again for uh, the president to decide on releasing more documents
1: And you wanted to talk about also the uh, what's happening with Dealey Plaza, too. Can you make a quick yeah, mention? terrible thing
0: happening that Dealey Plaza in Dallas has been preserved. And, uh, you know, that's where Kennedy was shot. And you see the grassy knoll. You see the uh, railroad overpass. You see the Texas Skillbook Depository. And uh, long ago, they were going to tear down the Texas Skillbook Depository, which was terrible. That people uh, protested, and they didn't. But now they have this plan to uh, sort of ruin Grassy Knoll, take out the fence, plant trees, make a walkway up there for people to stroll around on, and turn the parking lot behind it into a park, tear down the signal tower where Lee Bowers said he saw a gunman from. And uh, it's a terrible, terrible idea. I think historical sites in our country should be preserved. It's like it'd be like tearing down the White House and building a high rise. I mean, it's a ridiculous idea.
1: Um, so I Maybe hope that- tearing down the courthouse at Appomattox or something like that, like just incredibly yeah. important events. Well, to-
0: you know, Ford's Theater, when I first went there in '61, where Lincoln was shot, I was shocked to find the interior was empty, had been gutted. Right after the uh, killing, they they irrationally gutted the interior. Then they put in some government offices, and there was a terrible incident where some floors collapsed and people were killed. But what's there now is a reconstruction of the interior, very beautifully uh, executed. It's not the actual uh, interior, but it looks like it. They'd, they've done a good job on it. The basement has a museum of uh, weapons and things, very chilling. But um, fortunately they didn't tear down, tear down the building, but America has a tendency to obliterate the past. Gore Dahl calls our country, the United States of amnesia. And once you start destroying historical sites, battlefields, buildings, et cetera, people have a tendency to forget there's no place to gather and, and you know, look at, and try to figure out what happened. So there was a meeting, public meeting in Dallas a couple of days ago about this. And I hope people continue to protest. I'm going to be among the protesters. We want to keep it as it was. And a lot of people go there and visit. And the first time I met Penn Jones in uh, 1983, he was <clears throat> on Dealey Plaza. He was leading every year. He would lead a uh, kind of remembrance of Kennedy. And I said, uh, that was terrific. Are you going to go to the memorial? that they have is a couple blocks away, this very empty kind of memorial, kind of symbolic of their uh, attitude in Dallas. They wanna kind of forget the assassination and not really make sense of it. And I, he said, no, I'm not gonna go there. He said, the holy ground is where the martyr falls. So that's, what I, that's how I think of uh, Dealey Plaza. Let's keep it as it is so people can remember and visit and think about the case.
1: Yeah, a solemn moment too. I think it's very important. People are looking around there. When I was just there this year, they're thinking, they're looking around, they're in a place that something very important happened. So taking that away would be a real mistake, a disgrace to for history. For people not generations from now, generations 150 years from here, as long as there's people in the states, they have to remember this so it doesn't happen again. That's yep. really importance of yeah. these talks, these books, the books you're writing. So thanks so much for writing this book, Joseph McBride. Title again is Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett, published 2013. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you, William, and uh, thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure.
1: My pleasure. Likewise. Cool. Stay Likewise. Up.